My name is Sean, and I'm a grateful alcoholic. <clears throat> Sometimes. <laughs> Through the grace of God and the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I've been sober since April 24th, 1974, and for that I'm grateful. I'm an active member of the participation group. We meet on Wednesday nights in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's one of the two best groups in the world, and I understand you may know of the other one. <laughs> I, um, I want to thank the committee for asking me to be here. This is just incredible. The wonderful thing about being at these kind of things is I get to hear speakers. And, uh, and I've heard some extraordinary messages so far. <laughs> the quality is about to drop, but hey. Um, <laughs> Jack and his wife and, and George and, and Cricket and, and Scott and, oh, God. Oh, I love you. <laughs> You'll hear Karen tomorrow. She's the, uh, she does the mop-up tomorrow. <laughs> I wish I had a clue what I was going to talk about. I, you know, what I do is I get, a, I get all dressed up and then I get down to my knees and say, okay, God, I'll move my lips and you do the talking. So I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm surprised a lot of the times. I, um... I just want you to know that I belong in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, I want you to know that I, I love drinking. I mean, I just make, make no bones. I just loved it. I loved drinking and I loved, you know, drugs and I loved all the trouble. I, I just loved everything about it. Just loved it. Just, you know, I, I, I not only loved the effect, I loved, I loved the festival of drinking. You know, I loved the, I loved the glasses and the ice cubes, you know, and the toothpicks with the garbage on them. I mean, I love stupid drinks in coconut shells with umbrellas, you know. I, I love those in-depth conversations we got into at cocktail parties, you know, yeah. where we reappointed the Supreme Court. <coughs> And I love those meaningful relationships that sometimes lasted all night. You know, I just, you know, I love that kind of, I, I love that kind of electroshock treatment you got in the morning if you're a blackout drinker. You, know, you come to it, you know, that, I love, you know, I love that. You come to and you're lying next to it. <laughs> and you don't know who it is or what it is. And you don't know what you've done with it. <laughs> Or what you promised it. <laughs> and you gotta get out of there without waking it up. <laughs> and if you drink like I do, one day you come to and it's awake. And it's looking at you. And you look into its eyes and you realize you become its it. Those are the days you don't wait till five for a little drinky poo. <laughs> I started getting drunk when I was 14 years old. First time I got drunk, I blacked out, I threw up, I came to under a bush. And I could hardly wait to do it again. Because up until that point, I'd been extremely uncomfortable. Extremely. I'd, I was raised in a normal alcoholic home. My father was a drunk, my, father, my mother was a saint. And... Uh, and we did all that stuff. That, you know, you know what it is. I mean, you know, you know. Our family was capable of making large objects disappear by the power of our mind. <laughs> we could stand in front of the, uh, at the front door and make the police car disappear that had just brought my father home. 
The neighbors did not see that, you know. <laughs> My father was a very quiet, kind of introspective Scotsman, and when he drank, he became a singer. <clears throat> and I noticed that, and I stashed that away. Because what happened to me was when I was 14 years old, I was faced with something called puberty, which requires change, and I didn't know how to do that. I couldn't do it. But I had some information because I'd watched my father. And what I realized was if you had a glass of that stuff, you got to change. And so that's what I did. I mean, puberty looked extremely painful to me, so I skipped it. You know? Just went right over it. Mm. And that first night I got drunk, you know, you know, I, I said I was always uncomfortable. I, I found comfort that night. Southern comfort is what I found. And, and I mean, it felt go, oh, that wonderful. You know, it was like taking a bite out of a thunderstorm, you know, that it just, you know, the, the lightning crackled all the way down. And then there was this deep roll at the bottom, you know, and, and I understood suddenly at depth why my father was willing to go to jail so much. You know, I just... <laughs> And it didn't feel that bad coming up either. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> but the thing happened that night that happened until the last night that I drank. It happened every time, and that's why I did it, you know. I listen to people at podiums of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they say, drinking quit working for them. Well, if that had ever happened to me, I'd have quit drinking. It worked every time for me. It was fabulous. There was a moment, you know. There was a moment after three scotches and two joints or an upper and a, and a, and a, and a Valium and, and two vodkas or whatever the combination was where it all came together. You know? When it just wasn't painful. Now I thought that was ecstasy. It was just lack of pain. You know? But there was a moment when I was just... Oh, you know? <laughs> Tough, but tender. <laughs> Sexual, but sensitive. <laughs> a poet and a fighter. A great dancer who was fast with my fists. You know, God, I was just fabulous. Just, oh. You know, and then it would start to slip a bit, so I'd have another one, you know? And then, you know, on, you know, on Star Trek, when they hit warp speed, you know, it goes, you know? That's what would happen to me. I'd have another drink and, oh, shit. It'd be two hours later, and there'd be 15 people standing around going, you know? And, and I knew I'd done it again. You know? I was a blackout drinker, so most of my life was a rumor. Everything I passed up, passing on you, I picked up from other people. Oh, man. But I was coming from so far behind, and I don't know why. I don't know why, you know. It ain't all bad being raised in an alcoholic home. I mean, there's some really good times. There's some wild times. It's exciting. You know, my father was never physically violent. He just didn't show up a lot of times, you know, and... You know, there was stuff, it makes you, but it makes you kind of self-reliant and creative and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And, and my parents are very bright people and, and you know, it was, I, I, I was smart. I was a smart kid. It was weird, but I was smart. You know, I, 
I was, um, when I was 14, I was tall and fat, and I had thick glasses and crooked teeth. It's just a lovely combination. I looked like an avocado with glasses on. And I, uh, you know, it was just, uh, but anyway, that, uh, so I started getting drunk as, as often as I could. When I was 17, my mother became concerned that I was working too hard during exam time, and she gave me one of her little diet pills. God bless that woman. Oh, whoa! That was just wonderful. And then the 60s hit, and I'm a child of the 60s, you know, and, and, and we're the generation that made drug abuse middle class. You know? We snatched it from the hands of black musicians and brought it into the family rooms of America. You know? It was just fabulous. We tried everything. It was just, it was just really great. We just, uh, you know, to hear some of the old timers talk, you think that we messed up a perfectly respectable disease, you know, by, by adding dry. You know. I just wonder if they'd had the same opportunities we had if they would have said, no, no, no. I prefer to kill myself on Thunderbird. So I started taking drugs and drinking and making a damn fool of myself. By the time I was 21 years old, I decided I had a talent the world could have lived without, so I went to New York, and I, I had $50 in my pocket, and, uh, and I started uh, working as an actor, and I, uh, I, uh, by that time I was tall and slim and uh, kind of cute, you know, and, I, um, and uh, at least I, I thought I was getting there. And, uh, and I've always thought that if I didn't do extraordinary things, I was nothing, and, uh, and so I did a lot of extraordinary things, and I... Uh, I rode around New York and did a lot of crazy stuff. Um, and uh, by the time I was 24 years old, I'd picked up a little non-habit forming marijuana habit, and I was uh, <laughs> and I was working the docks, uh, not the kind the ships comes in, the doctors. You know, I had realized by that time <clears throat> what a bunch of jerks they were. They were just the best. I mean, I just thought it was stupid to buy drugs in alleys. I mean, you can get arrested for that kind of shit. So what I did was I, uh, I got medical books and memorized symptoms for the kind of drugs I wanted. And, uh, and I learned real rapidly that nobody in medical school ever told them how to, how to end an interview. Doctors can't say, well, bye-bye. They have to write something on a pad. That's the only way they, they know how to end the visit. So I, w I would go to three of them at a time and tell them the same story, and they gave me the same pad, you know, and... Uh, and then I'd go buy, the, buy whatever it was, and we'd all meet for drinks and exchange our pills. I got a red one. Do you want a blue one? <laughs> it's great. I was kind of drunk that if, I, if you invited me to your house for dinner, I'd go and, and go to your bathroom and lock the door, and then I'd go through your medicine cabinet and find, take whatever was pretty, you know? Ooh, here's a purple one. I've never tried a purple one. And 20 minutes later, you'd find me sprawled on the bathroom floor in a coma, <clears throat> or you'd have to peel me off the bathroom ceiling, depending on what I'd found in your... You know, and I thought that was okay. I thought, you know, I thought that was interesting. Because what was happening to me was I was starting, I was starting to get into that thing of alcoholism, and there was a whole lot of stuff that was going on with me where, where my, 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 my life loaded was my real life, and when I was sober, it was not. It was extremely painful for me. I was desperately insecure, desperately shy, uh, trying frantically to have you... I mean, if, if I couldn't get affection, I've always been willing to settle for attention. You know, so I was doing bizarre things just so that you know, noticed me because I thought I was dying. I thought I was vanishing. There was something terrible happening to me, and I didn't know what it was. 
by the time I was in my late 20s, I decided I was in real trouble and what I needed was a good woman. I, uh, and I found her in an elevator. I, uh, we had, uh, I'd been to shrinks. I, I went to a shrink. God, that was great. Uh, I decided that was it. He helped me a lot. He got, I was, by this time, I was drinking a quart of scotch a day. And uh, so I went to a shrink. And um, now I'm starring in Broadway shows, and I'm doing everything that people write books about, you know, and I'm drinking a quart of scotch a day. I mean, there's something wrong here. But he helped me. He got me down to a fifth of scotch a day, and he gave me a prescription for Valium and another one for Secondol. God bless that guy. That was great. That was super. So I decided I needed this good woman, and I found her. And we, we, were doing a, we were doing a show together, and I saw her across the rehearsal hall. She was a little dancer. She was in her leotard. She had the cutest behind I've ever seen. And, uh, and she turned around and looked at me, and our eyes locked and went, <laughs> you know. She had come from an alcoholic home, too. She was a, an untreated Al-Anon. And, uh, and that, it, was that, it was that awful moment when an Al-Anon recognizes potential. <laughs> and once that happens, you're dead meat. I mean, it's just, it's over, you know. Uh, so we started our dance of death, and uh, we eventually tangoed into AA and Alanon. We've been together 27 years. Uh, we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. And... Uh, <laughs> um, my life is graced by, by a woman who's a, a member of Al-Anon. Now, a member of Al-Anon is not somebody who is merely married to an alcoholic. A member of an Al-Anon is somebody who attends Al-Anon meetings, who works the steps and applies the traditions in her life and is active in service and sponsors people in Al-Anon. And uh, my wife is a member of Al-Anon, and uh, she's a... She's great. I, uh, <laughs> she's great. I really like her. <laughs> I really do. And there were some times when we didn't like each other very much, but I, I she's great. Um, some of you know her. Anyway, um, so um, we decided to get married, and we got married, and she settled down. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then all hell broke loose. I mean, it was just, by that time, it had ceased to be a luxury for me. It was a necessity to drink. I, I, I was medicating myself. I was, I, I was just providing some kind of chemical cushion from the realities of my life, which were, were becoming more and more unbearable. And, uh, and I made up rules for myself that I followed faithfully into Alcoholics Anonymous. One of them was that I never drank before 5 o'clock in the afternoon except on Sundays and holidays. And, uh, and uh, I always drank from a glass. That was very important to me because my father was a drunk, and we used to find wine bottles wrapped in brown paper bags. And I knew if you drank like that, man, that was just tacky. So I... Uh, I poured it into a glass, whatever it was. I mean, we do what we can to avoid coming to places like this. You know, I was, I was never shooting for AA. I never <laughs> um, and I was terrified all the time. And I don't even know what I was scared of. I mean, I don't know what it was. I don't know what was pursuing me. I don't know. I just knew that it was all going to collapse in on me at any moment. That there was going to be some kind of hiccup and it was all going to crash. You know? That, that terrible thing that they were all going to find out all at once. And then I'd be standing there and they'd know. They'd know that I was a fraud. They'd know that I was an unwelcome guest. They'd know that I didn't have the credentials, that I was an alien, that I didn't belong here or anywhere else. 
that I was a stranger because I was very, very strange. And the way that I had come to that conclusion was that I had never told anybody how I really felt about anything. I was desperately trying to work out my problems all by myself. And the problem with a guy like me is I'm so bright that my solutions are worse than my problems. <laughs> you know? It just kept getting worse. And I had everything that makes it look like I was doing okay. We were now living in Los Angeles. We had a little house in the Hollywood Hills. I drove a little Mercedes. I had a pretty wife. She was a little nuts, but I had a pretty wife. Had a pedigree dog. I had a sales job. I mean, there was just enough stuff to make it look like I was okay. There were some kind of grim realities to it. First of all, my wife was insane. Second of all, if I'd have had a flat tire in that Mercedes, we'd have had to declare bankruptcy. You know, there was money for booze, but there wasn't any money for food sometimes. It was insane. It was insane. And we were starting to have fights. We were starting to have those kind of fights that we both knew about because we were from alcoholic homes. You know, those fights that take you right to the edge of that point where if you say that one thing, it'll explode. And you move toward it and you hint like you're going to say it and then you back off from it. I knew all the buttons. I knew all the things that would just do it to her. And she knew all the things that would do it to me. And we were doing that dance. We were coming at each other. You know? And they were starting to get vicious, really vicious. And one night we had it. One night it blew. It just blew. And we said every rotten, hurtful, hateful thing we could to each other. And I came to the next morning and said, dear, for the first time I prayed a long time, I'd been raised an Irish Catholic as opposed to a Roman Catholic. And I, uh, <laughs> Irish Catholics get drunk with a priest. Uh, <clears throat> My entire spiritual life at that point consisted of those two alcoholic prayers. The first one is, dear God, get me out of this and I will never do it again. And the second alcoholic prayer is, <laughs> but I, I prayed that day and I said dear God let this stop just it's got to stop it's got to stop it's got to stop on April 23rd 1974 he answered my prayer I was arrested by the West Hollywood Vice Squad on a sleazy little charge I don't think the Hugh Grant story is all that amusing. <laughs> I hope he gets sober. I did. <laughs> so there I am, Mr. Nice Guy, handcuffed with the front of my pants and the waistband of the knees soaked in my own urine. Fingerprinted, photographed, and released on my own recognizance, and I went home. And the terrific thing was that Bonnie wasn't home. She was off saving somebody who didn't need to be saved, but she wasn't there. And thank God she wasn't there, because if she was, the two of us would have sat down and figured out some way that it was their fault. But she was not there to protect me or defend me or do any of those things that I required her to do, and I had to face exactly who I was and what I'd become. 
And who you are and what you have become is based on what you do. And I had done it. I, would, I had done it. I was a sleazebag. I was scum. I was the kind of guy that people talk, talk about, you know, make dirty jokes about. That's what I'd become. That was something I wasn't shooting for. And I said, I wonder if I'm a drunk. I wonder if I'm an alcoholic. That's the incredible thing about us drunks is our unbelievable ability to overlook overwhelming evidence. <laughs> I was a daily blackout drinker. I don't know why I didn't think I was an alcoholic. And the next morning I came to, uh, before, before I, I passed out that night, I demanded a miracle from God. I said, God, I don't want to be here. I want to vanish. I want to vanish. I didn't want to kill myself because she was so crazy. If she'd have come home and found a dead body, she'd have gone over the edge, and I couldn't do that to her. And I came to the next day, and boy, was I pissed off because I was still here. I didn't know that God uh, answered the, uh, the prayer. It's taken him a long time. <laughs> But that guy on April 23rd, 1974, has for a large part vanished. There was a woman that I'd been working with for a year, and she had six years of sobriety, and she was having a hell of a good time. She was a real example that this program is happy, joyous, and free. I mean, she had good days and bad days, but God, she was having a great time. And she was an AA. She was a drunk. She told people that. It embarrassed me when she did it. But I've been watching her for a year. She had no idea of the kind of trouble I was in. And I took her aside on April 24th, 1974, at 11 o'clock in the morning, and I said the last phrase. Now, I had said the first phrase. I had declared myself an alcoholic when I was 18 years old, but I didn't know that I'd done it. But I had said the phrase that only an alcoholic says, and if you're new here and you're not sure if you belong here, if you've ever said this phrase, you're a drunk. If you've ever heard anybody say it, you're listening to an alcoholic, the phrase is, I can control my drinking. <laughs> By the time I was 18, I'd been drinking for four years, I'd been taking drugs for a year, and I was in trouble with the chemicals. But the idea of living without them was terrifying to me. So I started on the great obsession of every abnormal drinker at 18 to control and enjoy my drinking. Now, I don't know about you, but I never got control and enjoy in the same room at the same time, ever. <laughs> ever. I mean, when I was controlling my drinking, I was miserable absolutely miserable. I mean, if somebody said to drink two glasses, you know, two drinks a night, my first question is, how big are the glasses? Yeah. The only way I drink is out of control. That's what I like, you know? I like being stark naked howling at the moon, you know? That's the kind of drunk I am, man. Ain't nothing quiet, pretty, or anything else. I'm out there. Just Or why do it? So I said the last phrase that day. I said, I'm an alcoholic, and I got 20 minutes before I go to pieces. And she heard the screaming. And she dropped everything and she 12-stepped me. She had a big book. She read chapter 3, chapter 5, and the 12 traditions to me. And I thought, my God, that woman's going to read that whole book. <clears throat> she told me her story. Now, mine was sleazy, but hers was disgusting. <laughs> she said, do you believe in God? And I said, I suppose so. And she said, that's good enough. And she took me to my first AA meeting. 
And the thing happened. The thing happened, you know. I was really grateful. You know, what happened is I opened the door to, the, to, to walk into the meeting and, and I got struck stupid. It was just fabulous, you know. I was so terrified. My life was absolutely shattered, you know. I looked pretty good. I had on a nice sports jacket and all that kind of stuff. I looked pretty good at my first day of meeting. You know, what? I, to give you an idea of how, you know, you, 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 you take a sock and you put a light bulb in it, and then you tap the light bulb and the light bulb shatters, but it looks the same because it's inside the sock. Well, that's, what it, that's essentially what happened to me. I, uh, I came to my first meeting in a $250 sports jacket from Saks Fifth Avenue. I had on French gabardine slacks, Italian loafers, and a designer tie. I'd been paid several hundred dollars for a day's work as a model about a week before I'd gotten here. I never stuck a quarter. Well, never mind. I, uh, <laughs> um, <clears throat> I looked fabulous at my first AA meeting. I mean, I just... But everybody knew that I was a drunk, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. There were a couple of things going on that I wasn't aware of. First of all, I'd been drinking straight vodka the night before, and it was a rather warm spring night, and I had on a lot of lemon-lime cologne, and I smelled like a gimlet. <laughs> there was an air about me, you know, and... Uh, and I had newcomer eyes. Now, the only other place I've ever seen eyes like that, other than on a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous, are on a dog loose on a freeway. <laughs> I was just terrible. It was a huge meeting. There were about 400 people there. It was in L.A., and they had these great big huge meetings, and it was filled with smoke, and all those people I never would have drank with were there. And uh, it was like being dropped into a shark tank. I've never seen so many teeth coming at me in my life. They just, hi! <laughs> Oh, God. They're just real glad to see me. <laughs> we want you to keep coming back. <laughs> oh, Jesus, you know. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to wear funny hats and we're going to sing songs. I know it. I know it. I know it. You know. They're going to show me the secret handshake. And oh, no. And I sat down, and uh, and a woman shared and talked. And, I mean, her story was just n unlike mine at all, but there was something that went on in that room. I got it the first night that I was sober that I was understood and accepted somehow, that this was the only safe place that I'd ever been in my life. You know, I was born with an edge on. So I have always, you know, I've always been out there, just out there. I mean, if it's dangerous, let's go do it. You know, let's see what that's like. You know, especially emotionally dangerous. I mean, I don't, I'm not physically, I'm a coward, but I mean, I just loved, you know, weird stuff way out there, you know, just. And, uh, but this place felt safe. It just, uh. And I also, nobody told me that I could slip. And I'm real glad nobody gave me that kind of, you know, that kind of option. I'm, I'm, I have been, I have been clean and sober since that day. Um. And I recognized, I recognized at some kind of deep emotional level that, I, that there had been a storm at sea and I had been washed ashore. And if I was real bright, I'd stay on land. You know, that I wasn't going to go out to sea again. And I never have. You know, I've never gone out there because uh, uh, I, I, I just, 
I don't want to do that. I mean, I've, you know, there's a lot of, you hear, you, a lot of people make it back here. A lot of people make it back here, but more people don't. And I don't want to be one of those guys. You know, Scott and I were talking about it, about, you know, we're the kind that don't make this. We, you know, we're too cute, we're too bright, and we got too much going for us, you know. And what we do is we come here to get the heat off and maybe, you know, straighten ourselves out a bit. And then we got stuff to do, man, you know. And we probably are real active for about six, eight months, and then somebody says, anybody seen Scott and Sean? I said, God, no, we haven't seen them around for a while, you know. And I was terrified of that. I asked God to let me learn this thing slowly. One should be careful what one prays for. <laughs> I got a sponsor the first night that I was sober. He started shoving the 12 steps down my throat. It was clear that I was powerless over alcohol. I admitted very readily that once I had a drink, I could not predict what was going to happen to me. You know? He said the test was real simple. If you have a drink, do you want another one? Even if you don't have one, do you want another one? Oops. <laughs> I always, I, you know, I, I was one of those guys that didn't drink at lunch. Because if I drank at lunch, I never made it back to the office. You know, social drinkers don't worry about that. They have a drink at lunch. And I always, I, I, the, one of the most amazing things, phenomena in the world, and it still absolutely amazes me, is the guys who stop off and have a beer before they go home after work. I don't know. How do you do that? Why would you do that? Why would you have just one? I mean, that's so stupid. And my life had become unmanageable. My life was dribbling down my sleeve. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm standing there in a $250 sports jacket. I mean, I'm looking absolutely wonderful. I got commercials running on television as the boy next door, and I got fingerprint ink on. You know, what's wrong with this picture? You know, it's a little unmanageable. The second step is I came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. They, to, they, they told me to lower my standards on powers greater than me. They didn't have to be the big enchilada. You know, somebody with 20 minutes more sobriety than me was the power greater than me. The big book was a power greater than me. A room like this is a power greater than me. This whole thing is a power greater than me. Just surrender to that. It could restore me to sanity. I was going to, I, you know, I, I'm going to meetings in L.A. I mean, there's some serious insanity there. You know, I, you know, I'd never been to the rubber rooms and the paper slippers. No doorknobs on this side. That wasn't my, you know, I'm the kind of drunk that goes to therapists and talks about stress. And they give us medication to get us through. So I, I was had trouble with the insanity thing because I thought I was fairly, you know, maybe I'll, I had a light case of alcoholism until I, uh, I, looked, I looked up uh, a, a medical def definition of insanity. It was a great big, huge, long definition, and out of the middle of it popped a, a phrase that enabled me to take the second step. It's a medical definition of insanity. Quote, a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. <laughs> Let me just repeat that for you if you're new. <laughs> a seeming inability to learn from one's mistakes. I had spent my life coming to having done it again. And what I did was I never looked back. My philosophy of life is a moving target is harder to hit, man. Never look back. You know, just keep on moving. And when you keep doing that, you keep slamming into the same brick wall. And that's insanity. I took the second step right there, right there. And then I did the third step, which was making a decision to turn my will and my life over to God, as I understand God. I had a little trouble in that area. But they explained to me what it, making a decision... You see, that, I, didn't have to, I didn't have to do the whole God number right there at step three. It's a decision to turn your will and your life over. 
Now, the decision is like this. If I decide to buy a house, I'm not in a house. If I decide to buy a house, what I've got to do is buy a newspaper. And then I look through the newspaper and I look at ads for realtors and stuff. And then I make a couple of calls. Maybe I go find a realtor and I go look at a whole bunch of houses, you know. And then eventually I find a house that I like and I make an offer. And then the owner makes a counteroffer and I make another counteroffer and we, you know, we negotiate. We do that kind of stuff. And then we agree on something and I put some money down and go to a bank to see if I can get a loan and we open an escrow. And a couple of months down the line, I own the house. So the thing between the decision and the house is about this long. There's a whole lot of things you got to do to get there. So the third step is the decision. The turning the will and the life over to God happens around the 12th step. But in the meantime, there's stuff to get to there. And one of them is a definition of the problem. And the definition of the problem is the fourth step, not in the problem. And I had to define myself on the basis of three things, fears, resentments, and sexual problems, just like the big book talks about. And I did that. I did that because I didn't think he had a choice. I hear some lunatics around Alcoholics Anonymous who say you don't take the steps until you're a year sober. I don't know how you get to be a year sober if you don't take the steps. I was three weeks sober when my sponsor turned on me. And said, you got three weeks to do your fourth your four step. I didn't know you couldn't do it, so I did it. Then came the fifth step, and that's the that's the leap. That's the trust thing, you know? My fifth step wasn't anything interesting. If you'd gathered together 300 people that I'd told bits and pieces of my story to, you'd get the whole thing. But this was the whole thing to somebody I'd known six weeks. I don't do that. I mean, if I'm going to tell you one terrible, deep, dark secret about me, I want to hear one about you so that if you crowd me, I'll threaten to expose you. Yeah? So here I was spilling my guts to somebody I didn't know very well, but he was spilling his guts back. And I started to trust somebody, you know? What we did was we spread out this mess. What I was like, I was like this, I was like this porcelain vase that somebody had taken a sledgehammer to and I was smashed into pieces. And what we did was we gathered up all the pieces and we spread them out and we started gluing them back together. That's what this process is. But, but there's something you got to understand, you know, about recovery and being recovered. I'm not yet recovered. I, I got a little work to do yet. Uh, but I, uh, when they glue somebody like me back together again, the problem with that, see, I want, I want to pretend like nothing happened. But if something gets smashed, it's not as if nothing happened. It gets glued back together, and in some places it's stronger than it was. In some places, it's weaker than it was. And the problem is, is I don't know where those places are. So I got to be keep checking my moves with my sponsor and with you guys. So anyway, we did that fifth thing, and then, uh, and I did it with my sponsor. There's a big thing up in Canada that you kind of go off to a priest or a, a doctor, and you do your fifth step. You know, you go off. These guys keep coming back and say, I did my fifth step, and I feel so much better. Nobody still knows who the hell they are, you know. I did it with my sponsor. I wanted to take a blind nun off the Amazon and <laughs> do it and tip the canoe over, but I uh, I did it with uh, I did it with my sponsor, and then I saw him the next day, you know, and he kind of said, "Oh, hey, how's it going?" And I'm so embarrassed. I mean, he knew all about me. You know, I don't like that. I don't. You know, I I have this desperate need to be known. You know, because I've been an outlaw, 
I need to be known, but I don't want you to know me. You know, you know that, you know that thing. Oh, there's some head nodder here. Thank God. I thought you guys were the ones with brain damage when I first got here. You know the ones with. You're the ones that saved my life when I say, you know, I just did something, something that I'm the only person who's ever done this. And somebody goes. <laughs> and after a couple of weeks, he was openly talking about my things. I, you know, he'd say, uh, oh, listen, uh, Sean, you need to go talk to this guy over here because he's done a lot of the same stuff you've done. I said, wait a minute. You know, I thought this was a secret. He said, no, now it's useful. Get your ass over there and talk to us. <laughs> so every degenerate in Hollywood was coming to talk to me. Well, you did that too, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I gotta go to court for shut up. <clears throat> I, uh, then we did the sixth step. You know, I gave God the laundry list. Here's the stuff, God. Take care of this, will you? And then they slide the seventh step in, which is the humility thing. You know, humbly ask him. And uh, I got to tell you, some of the character defects just kind of disappeared, vanished, because I wasn't drinking, you know. And some of them, God just removed like a sliver, just, you know. And then there's the ones that, uh, <laughs> that God cuts out of you with a dull stone knife with no anesthetic. <laughs> If you live long enough in Alcoholics Anonymous, you find out your survival skills are your character defects. Yeah. <laughs> Everything that I thought was valuable about myself turned out to be killing me. And uh, so it's been an ongoing process. The eighth step, I made a list of people and I took it to my sponsor. Again, I, 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 needed, to, I needed to have somebody know me. I, I, I have a sponsor in, in, in Vancouver who knows me. Knows all about me. Knows every little crummy thing about me, you know. And, and uh, um, so I, I did the eight step. You know, I, I did a whole list. You know, and he added some and took some off. You know, for instance, he didn't feel it was necessary when I had three months of sobriety to go make amends to my drug dealer. You know, <laughs> I've been sober for three months. Terrific, kid. Let's have a little hit. You know, he didn't think that was a great idea. You know, I said, but I owe money. He said, you know what? That's part of the cost of doing business. Screw them. Yeah. So I never paid back by drug dealer. Screw them. And then the ninth step, you know, I had to go. I had to go do that stuff, you know. And there's a wonderful little phrase in there: "Except when to do so would injure them or others." <laughs> Why bring it up after all these years? It'll only upset them. So he told me to scratch that little phrase out of my big book and get my ass out there. And so I had to do I had to do face to face ones. You know, oh God! And at first, doing amends is kind of exciting. You know, I, I I'm kind of hooked on my own adrenaline. You know, I kind of like that rush. You know, you don't know when you knock on the door if the guy's going to kill you or throw you out or you know burst into tears and hug you. You know, you know, you never know how it's going to go. So it's kind of exciting. You know. Most of the time we did, they were so drunk too that they didn't remember it either. I mean, you know, oh God, they were just awful and they were just slimy and I hated them. And I said, but I got a wife, you know, and I got to do, how do I make amends to her? And how do I make amends to my parents? How do I make amends to my brother and sister-in-law, my niece and nephews, the people that I live with on a daily basis? And he said, you're going to be sober. And you're going to be sober for a long, long, long time. And that'll be amends. Because they will remain unimpressed for a long time with your sobriety. <laughs> That has been incredibly true. 
I, um, and then I started on the 10th step, and the 10th step was looking over my day and seeing what I did right and what I did wrong. Now, I was raised an Irish Catholic, and, you know, they, they got me on that thing. If you think about it, you've done it. You know, then I was in deep trouble. I mean, it was, you know, so I, and, and, and see, when I do something wrong, I tend, I don't wait for you to punish me or God. I, I beat the hell out of myself, you know. I, I can carve myself up worse than anybody I've ever known. And so, and so I, I, I went to my sponsor and said, you know, this thing is, I, I, I'm, it's immobilizing me. I just, uh, and he said, well, you know, so what, what I do now is I look at my day and I say, what did I do today that I approve of? And what did I do today that I don't approve of? It doesn't matter whether you do or not. It's what do I approve of and what do I don't approve of? And I try to set it right with the stuff that I don't approve of. And the stuff I approve of, I let go because I tend to, you know, Chuck Chamberlain used to talk about we live our lives in 24-hour compartments. We give up the victories and the defeats each day. And that's real important to me because I tend to string the victories out until they're real thin, you know. And I tend to concentrate a whole lot on what's wrong with my life. And so I do that on a daily basis. And I, uh, and I, looked, I, looked, I looked to a kind of God uh, on the, in the 11th step. I mean, meditation, I knew about a meditation. You know, I'm, I'm a child of the 60s, you know. <laughs> Light up a big bong and listen to some sitar music. And, you know. <laughs> So I started in this meditating thing, and oh boy, it didn't go very well with me, you know, because I, what I want, I figured if I got quiet enough, kind of God would let me know how things were going to be, you know. I was using meditation for fortune telling, was what I was doing, and what meditation is, is, is I tried, I tried very hard to get as quiet as I can so that I recognize exactly what I need, exactly right in front of me, exactly now. One of the reasons I go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and I particularly love people who take one-year cakes. Because people, there's something that happens when you take your one-year cake. You get up here and accidentally say the most extraordinary things that guys like me need to hear. This little girl got up, I did a couple of one-year cake stories. There's one little girl, one little girl in Hollywood got up, and half of her head was shaved, the other was green spiked. She had, you know, you know, safety pin through her nose and a leather jacket that was five times too big for her, and she was tough! And she said... She said, uh, my parents never approved of me. And she said, what I've learned is that I never approved of them. And she said, I'm working on that. And I thought, wow, isn't that incredible? You know, another little girl got up and said her sponsor told her to be where her hands are. I mean, that's how you stay in the now. You just be where your hands are, you know? What an incredible thing. I mean, I'm too bright to come across something like that. I mean, that's too simple. But slowly over the years, my meditation has changed, and now what I do, and it's funny, a cricket brought it up, I, uh, I meditate on a daily basis on the phrase, be still and know that I am God. And what I do is I sit in a comfortable chair in the morning, and I take that phrase, and I, I pull it apart. And I concentrate on each word until I've got the phrase built. You know? I sit in the chair and I say, be. Just be. Just listen to my stomach gurgle and the sound outside. Feel the temperature of the room. Just be. And then be still. Just let everything get still. Just be still. And be still and know. Kind of open up my head. Just open it up. Just be still and know that I'm part of the earth and part of the universe, that uh, there's something flowing around in a big, huge circle. Be still and know that. Just be still and know that I am a tiny part of a huge thing. Be still and know that I am. 
that I am alive, that I'm here, that I'm now, that this is it. And be still and know that I am God. And make that step toward God. As we drove here from the airport, I we crossed the bridge and I said, what is that? And Jack said, that's the Ohio River. I love rivers because rivers have helped me find a God. Rivers, have, I, because of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been asked to, 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 to share all over North America. And I get, to, I get to go to places and I've seen all the great rivers. I've seen the Mississippi and I've, I've, I've seen the St. Lawrence and I've seen the Columbia and I've seen the Ohio. I've seen all the great, great rivers. And they're the concept that helped me find the God that I see. My whole life was, was I was standing at the edge of this great river, you know, and I was looking right down at those little pools, and they kind of swirl around. And if you stick your finger in it, it gives you the illusion that you can change the direction of it in this little pool. And that's what I thought I was doing, you know, that I had the, somehow the power to kind of change it, you know. You know, I was asking God to make exceptions in my case. That was, that was my spiritual life. Just give me a break on this one, man, you know. And what Alcoholics Anonymous has enabled me to do is to look up. And there's a great river going by. And the wider and, and the more important the river is, the slower it goes by. It's just moving, you know? And it's just moving in the direction slowly and inexorably toward where it has to be, to the place that it has to be, the great ocean, you know? So my responsibility is to paddle out to the middle of the river and then throw away the paddle. And sometimes I do that. Sometimes I get out there and I just go with it, you know. And, and then, and then I build myself a paddle. <laughs> and I, as as this was going on, along came the twelve step. And the twelve step is in three parts, you know. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, and that's what I desperately needed. And that's the promise in the second step that I'll be restored to sanity. And that's the decision. If I've done all these steps to the best of my ability, I'll get to that thing where I will experience a spiritual awakening. And I was waiting for what? You know, I was waiting for the wind to blow up my ass like Bill Wilson, you know. You know, nothing like that ever happened to me. You know, nothing like, you know. I think that was a little drug withdrawal. You know, I don't don't know. Nothing like those kind of stuff was happening to me, you know? But there was a kind of calmness and a kind of thing, you know, and I was starting to make better decisions. I was now starting to talk to my sponsor about what I was thinking of doing, and he was starting to say, yeah, that sounds like a good idea instead of, you know? And a spiritual awakening is sanity. You know, one of the problems we've got these days is that alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous has become so kind of famous and hip. I, you know, when I got sober, it was kind of sleazy. I, you know, I, I, as a matter of fact, I didn't want anybody to know I was an alcoholic Anonymous for the first two years that I was sober. I don't know why it was more embarrassing to be sober than it was to throw up on your Christmas tree, but there you have it, you know. I just didn't want anybody to know. You know, it was a real scumbag organization, and I think we should go back to that, you know, because people, people basically left us alone. What's happened is the medical profession and the insurance companies have found out we're big business. But the only trouble is, is, it, is the diagnosis pisses them off. Because once it's alcoholism, there's nothing they can do. If they medicate, if they medicate us, it gets worse. They have to turn us over to a bunch of drunks. With no credentials. So what the medical profession likes to do is they like to take the diagnosis of alcoholism and they like to carve it up like a pie. And they like to take little sections of the disease out of it and treat it. They like us to be bipolar. 
They like us to be clinically depressed. They like us to be psychotic. They like us to be paranoid. You take those little pieces, they don't understand that that's the whole package, man. You know? Any, any doctor who has any knowledge of alcoholism and any ethics, which is a real weird combination, <laughs> knows that you can't double diagnose an alcoholic in his first year of sobriety because you take alcohol and drugs away from us, we manifest every psychological disorder known to man. By the time I was six months sober, I was crazier than I'd ever been in my life. I was clearly bipolar. I mean, I had days when I was just, you know? running around with my big book saying this is it you know you know and half an hour later you find me crying in a corner of an Orlando club yeah when you stop drinking a quart of vodka a day you have things like sugar drop you know <laughs> I mean those old guys knew what they were talking about stuff them full of candy so they don't get crazy you know <laughs> I was paranoid. There were large groups of people talking about me. I knew about it. They were all in rooms like this, you know. <laughs> Clearly psychotic. I mean, you said, hello, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Oh, man. I mean, I was just nuts. And luckily, I was surrounded by a lot of people who knew that. You know? I saw all those hands go up. How many are in your first year of sobriety? Let me see. Hands up. <laughs> How do you like it so far? Right? <laughs> Getting sober was the worst experience of my adult life. One of the reasons that I stay sober, and there are not a lot of them now, is I never want to have to get sober again as long as I live. I never want to have to be in my first year again. Oh, man. Oh. I was one of the last of the group that they gave half a cup of coffee to because I was coming off of everything. You know, I just, <laughs> you know, I was lethal. I had been, Suzanne had explained to me that, that, that we defined sobriety in Southern California in 1974 and it had been for a long while as clean and sober. I said, what the hell does that mean? And she said, that means you don't drink any alcohol and you don't take any mind-altering chemicals. So there I was. I mean, I was coming off of everything in those rooms. People were going on 12-step calls with wooden, you went with a wooden spoon. Because somebody was coming off of something and they'd usually go into a ground mall seizure, stuck a spoon in his mouth and turned to an AA meeting, you know? I mean, it was just crazy. It was wild. And every lunatic in town was in it. Just, you know, I was part of it. Me, me and Claire got sober together. And I don't know if you know Claire. She's, she's, she's a great lady. She was still an Indian princess when I got sober. <laughs> She's now gotten to be a black woman, which is great. <laughs> Funny. And to show you how crazy I was, I went to my sponsor and I said, I'm not sure that that woman's Indian. <laughs> I mean, I like her, but I, you know. And he said, keep coming back, more will be revealed, you know. She looked across the table at me. I was about three days sober, and I was like, the color had drained from my face, and she said to a friend of hers, that's the whitest white boy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Shit. We call each other on our birthdays, and we laugh, and we get to talk at comfort. We, get, we, we had the most extraordinary experience. 
We got sober in these rooms together, and I mean, it was a nightmare. It's a nightmare getting sober, and it should be. I mean, it shouldn't be a 28-day goddamn vacation. It should be hell, you know? It should be just, it should just suck. I mean, and it did for me, and it did for Claire, and it was tough, and we didn't know if we were not going to drink tonight. We didn't know, you know? And we were terrified. And at 15 years of sobriety, we were invited to talk at a conference in Palm Springs. And she was one of the speakers, and I was one of the speakers. And nobody knew how far we'd come. Nobody knew the journey inside. We knew because we'd known each other for 15 years. Those incredible things at Alcoholics Anonymous. And here was this beautiful, wonderful black woman that I love so much. And here am I, this snot-ass, smart-ass white guy, you know. And I sat in the front row when she talked, and she sat in the front row when I talked. And there are 1,500 people who listened to us have a conversation with each other. And we told each other what's been happening with us. And 1,500 people got to listen. It was incredible. It was one of the most intimate moments I've ever had in my life. Incredible things happened here. I went to my sponsor when I was first sober and I said, I gotta divorce my wife. I mean she's found Alan on, I found A, we've done too much damage, let's go our separate ways. He says you're not gonna you're not gonna make any emotional decisions in your first year of sobriety. And I said, What the hell does that mean? He said that means you're not gonna divorce your wife. You're not gonna find a girlfriend, you're not gonna leave, you're not gonna get a new apartment, you're not gonna redecorate, you're not gonna buy a new car, you're not gonna quit smoking, you're not gonna go on a diet, you're not gonna start jogging fifteen miles a day, you're not gonna go to the gym, you're not gonna do a goddamn thing. What you're gonna do is you're gonna put your entire life on hold, you're gonna work the twelve steps and you're gonna get sober and it takes about a year. <clears throat> and I said, but you don't understand. I'm not sure that I love her, and he said, I don't give a damn about love, work on good manners. So I started saying please and thank you to my wife. I also was one of the first ones that was going to die from lack of sleep. Uh, we're talking tonight at dinner. The only thing that would make me sleep was reading the big book. Just <laughs> And I felt guilty because I was trying to read the big book. He said, do it in the morning. You know, do it in the morning. Don't, don't worry about it. Uh, I was just absolutely bananas. When I was four months over, I became impotent. <laughs> the last thing I did really well. <laughs> Gone. <Yeah. laughs> Call my sponsor. <laughs> he said, Oh, hi, Sean. What's up? He said, Nothing. He said, Don't worry about it. It happens to most guys four to six months sober, it'll go away. Anybody here is 46 months sober, it goes away. <laughs> it's not a permanent condition. When I was six months sober, I was crazy. I told you how crazy I was. I was driving up and down the hallway. I was taking guys to meetings. I was doing the 12 steps. I was doing it, the whole thing. I mean, I was, I was doing it. You know, and, and then you'd see me in the afternoons driving up and down the Hollywood freeway screaming at the top of my lungs in my car. Or I took naps. Now, I tried as best I could to sleep through my entire first year of sobriety. <laughs> If I couldn't get loaded, I was going to get out somehow because an entire damn reality was more than I could handle. I don't know about you. So I took naps. Uh, I was a functioning alcoholic. I had a wife who worked. And I, uh, 
and I was in sales. <laughs> little, little problem with authority there. So I, um, I had my first spiritual experience. I was, I was trying to nap, and I couldn't. I was furious, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I said, I don't believe in you, and I think you're a jerk. <laughs> then it occurred to me, if I didn't believe, who was I yelling at? <laughs> And then I waited for three weeks to see if I get punished for calling him a jerk, you know, and I didn't. <laughs> and so it went. I mean, you know, it went up and it went down. And I mean, it, 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 things got better and it, we, we stayed together and we worked out a lot of stuff. And when I was five years sober, I was captain sobriety. I was more sober than anybody in the world. I mean, I was giving talks and doing all kinds of things and something was happening to me and I didn't know. All these insights I share with you are all hindsights. I have not a clue about what's going on with me at the moment. You know, there's some people who think that, it, that sobriety is, is getting in touch with your feelings. What I found is my feelings get in touch with me quite handily. You know, <laughs> you know it doesn't matter how I feel, it matters how I act. That's, you know. But I was testing the fence lines of my sobriety. I was so sober I was going to see what the edges were. I wanted to find out how much rope I had before I actually hang myself. And what I did was I stepped out of the middle of Alcoholics Anonymous and I started moving over to the edge. And I destroyed my life again. I ended up getting arrested by the vice squad again. Only this time there wasn't any cushion from it. I was cold sober. And for the first time in my life, I seriously contemplated suicide. But I'd been going to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. And my sponsor told me that I could never leave before the end of the Lord's Prayer. And so I sat through listening to some of the dullest, stupidest assholes I've ever heard in my life. And I stored stuff away that they said. And one of them one time had said about suicide that he didn't want to kill a man, he just wanted to kill the moment. And that if you'd be very still, the moment would pass. And I tried to get as still as I could. Bonnie came home from Rallanon meeting, she walked in the kitchen and went, oh my God, what's happened? And I blurted out what had happened. And she didn't start screaming. She didn't say, why are you destroying our lives? Why are you doing She didn't do any of that. What she did is she sat down at the table and she looked across at the table at me and she put her hand out and she put it on the side of my face and she said, Sean, I'm so sorry you have to hurt yourself so bad. The miracle of Al-Anon had happened in her. And she went off for a little while and she came back and she said, Sean, in order to stay married to you, I need two things. I need you to be faithful and I need you to be supportive. And if you can do those things, I'll stay married to you because I love you. But if you can't do those things, I have to leave because I love you. And I was faced with a decision. I did a whole lot of writing on it, a whole lot of talking to my sponsor. And we renewed our wedding vows. And we started to rebuild our marriage. And the way we started rebuilding our marriage and our relationship, because about that time, we decided to play a little Vatican roulette. And, and, uh, <clears throat> and Bonnie got pregnant. And I was about to be a father. I was terrified. I didn't know how to do it. I mean, I, everything I've learned, I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, when I wanted to be a husband, I went to the husbands. I said, how do you be a husband? And the sober husbands in Alcoholics Anonymous taught me how to be a husband. They taught me all the stuff. You know, they taught me stuff like never surprise an Al-Anon. They've been surprised enough. You know? If you've got a great idea, you say to them, listen, honey, I've got this great idea. I'm going to tell it to you, and I want you to think about it and talk to me tomorrow. You know? They told me all kinds of great stuff like that. They said, pick up flowers on the, way from, on the way home from work for no reason. And I do that. I do stuff like that. I regularly tell Bonnie how much I love her and how much I respect her and how much I admire her because I do. 
I treat her like I'd like to get to know her. And because of that, I'm married to my girlfriend. And I've been married to my girlfriend for 25 years. It's amazing how this thing works. But Kate was about to be born. And I said, what do you do? You know, how do you do this? And my sponsor said, there's something that you have to understand about what's going to happen to you, Sean, is your child is going to be born and your child is going to learn, is going to form their opinion and their concept of God based on their relationship with you. That that's the basis for their relationship with God. So you got a responsibility. And so what I did was I started looking at the traditions because the traditions up to that point had been so separate from the steps. I thought the steps were for the individual and the traditions were out there for groups and stuff. But what I came to understand is the traditions are applicable in our lives. And the end of that, that, that 12 steps says we practice these principles in all our affairs. How do you do that? What does that mean? What are the principles that I've learned? And I've learned them in the 12 steps, but now I've got to apply them. How do you do it? When I was eight years sober, Kate was born. Now, you have beautiful and intelligent children, but I have Kate. <laughs> and she's the light of my life. I mean, she's just extraordinary. And she, I, I've got a picture of her, so I'll show it to you later. <laughs> but I came to start applying the traditions, and that's what we're doing to this day. And that's what I want to talk about a little is today, what we do with the traditions. You know, for our family's common welfare, our common welfare in our family comes first. Personal recovery depends on family unity. And what we've had to do at times is sit down and say, okay, what are the principles that this family lives by? You know, what are our goals? Who are we? What do we believe in? Let's all agree on what we believe in. That's the unity in our family, you know? What happens so many times is it, the, the unity gets skewed by, in new sobriety because all the focus is on one person, and that's the alcoholic who's recovering, you know? And for the first couple of years, all the attention is on that. And a lot of people in families get left out and get, and get abandoned because of that stuff. But after a time, you know, we've been sober a while, we've got to step up. We've got to re-enter society and re-enter our lives. It's okay to look good at AA meetings, but how do I look in my bedroom? How do I look in my den? How do I look in the workplace? And who are the people in my family? Is their recovery, is their life as important as mine? Yes, it is, and it's got to be looked at. You know, for our family's group purposes, but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. And we've gotten to some things in our lives where we've had to make decisions where we said, you know what, why don't we just pray about this, and then we'll come back and talk about it. Yeah. Parents are but trusted servants. They do not govern. A lot of times I try to make things happen by force of will. God damn it, this is what we're going to do. You know? And what I'm required to do is lead by example. Not this is what we're going to do, but this is who I am. This is what I believe in. This is what I'm doing. The only requirement for family membership is a desire to be part of that family. I mean, relatives, if they come together for mutual support, get to be family. Otherwise, they remain relatives. I got a lot of relatives who weren't family. I got a lot of family who weren't relatives. I got a lot of family in these rooms, people that I go to to get the advice and the, and the support that I need. You know, and if there's somebody in my family who doesn't support the principles by which we live, do we have the courage to ask them to leave? Or if I can't support the principles by which the family is going in, do I have the, do I have the courage to leave that? That's something that has to be looked at. Every member of the family is autonomous, except in matters affecting the family as a whole or the community. I mean, we all, the right of everybody to express their opinions. When we moved to Vancouver almost nine years ago, it was a big, huge move for us. And so what we did was the three of us went to Vancouver, and we explored the city for a week. Kate was five years old, and she had part of that decision. 
because her life was being uprooted too. And we looked at all the possibilities. We read all the papers. We went to all the places in the city. And then we sat down at the hotel and said, what do you think? And Kate said, I love the water parks. Let's move. (laughs) You know? But she had an opinion. And she had the sense that it was important to the contribution. And it is. And we do that to this day. Uh, We have a primary purpose, and that is to be mutually supportive. You know, I make sure that Kate understands that I am on her side. I make sure that Bonnie understands that I'm on her side. And a lot of times we have some disagreements about stuff. It gets hard in our family. And i got to say, wait a minute, hold it. I want you to understand I'm on your side. You know, we remind each other of that sometimes. We've been, we've been going through some tough financial stuff. I just started a business about a year ago, about eight months ago. And it's, uh, we're at that point where we got, you know, we, we got some, some outstanding, some accounts receivable, you know, we've, we've spent a whole lot of money and we got a real bad cash flow problem, you know. I've had to get on the phone and talk to creditors and say, listen, the good news is I'm going to pay you 100 cents on the dollar. The bad news is I'm not going to be able to do it yet, you know. I've had to do that. I had not looked good in business. And what we've had to do is in order to get out from under a business loan, I've had to put, I've had to refinance the house and we've had to go through that thing. And it's a very, very scary time for us. And what we did was we sat everybody down, including Kate, who's 14 years old, who hasn't got a clue about money, and said, this is what's going on. Money's tight. So when you want a CD, I'll try and get it for you, but I don't know whether I can. We're not selling this house. We're not doing any of that stuff. But it's a real tight, tough time. So let's be aware of that, and let's get through this. It's important that they understand that. They watch the process. Kate watches the process when Bonnie and I sit down and do the bills together on the 1st and the 15th of the month. So she understands that when money comes in, it goes out, and how it goes out, and how you make those decisions of how much you're going to pay on this and how much you're going to hold back. And we do that. Uh, Our family name, I'd never endorse finance or lend the aid. Our our family name to any related or outside enterprises, less money, property, and prestige. We have got to understand in our household, in order for us to survive, we've got spiritual principles. And I've been rich and I've been poor in Alcoholics Anonymous. I prefer the problems of being rich to the problems of being poor, but they all got problems. You know, I've got to tell you, the money, property, and prestige don't protect you and they don't fix you. They sure seem like they should, but they don't. You know? And, uh, and we've got to make sure that this family is on track with spiritual principles and ethics, no matter what we're going to do. Uh, our family is fully self-supporting declining outside contributions that's real important to me it's real important to me because my sponsor my first sponsor who I owed everything to I believe the man who taught me everything about Alcoholics Anonymous borrowed an enormous amount of money from me and did not pay me back he has not paid me back to this day and it almost bankrupted my family and what I came to find out is the man that I admired the most had no seventh tradition in his life it became very important for me that I do very, very important to me. So if I'm going to borrow money from an institution, I make sure that there's a contract. If I'm going to borrow money from somebody in the fellowship, I make sure that there's a, there's a written contract between us that lays out how much I have borrowed, what the interest is on that, and when it will be repaid. And we both sign it, and I've done that in this program. Uh, if I find, as I have at times, that I'm going to need some kind of government assistance in order to get through whatever's going on, am I making absolutely every effort to get out from that, to find myself a job, to become financially independent? That's what I'm required to do as a sober man in Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) Um, I remain forever non-professional. I employ special workers. I am not the resident expert in my family. 
I've got a lot of experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I don't know everything. I've got to look at whether I have enough humility to recommend that somebody in my family go to see a lawyer or a doctor or a specialist of some kind to solve problems that I can't solve from them. I, uh, our family ought never be organized, but we do have responsibilities toward each other. You know, one of the things you do in Alcoholics Anonymous, or one of the things you do in, 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 in alcoholic families is kind of organize activities. So, you know, I, I, I kept making commitments for my family that they had no idea what was up. You know, we're going to go do this, we're doing that. And I can't do that. You know, I got to let them do whatever they're going to do. And, uh, but we do have commitments to each other. We had a problem with Kate in her room. She's, you know, she's a teenage girl, and her room looks like it's been burglarized several times. I mean, it is atrocious. It is absolutely unbelievable. It was driving me crazy. It was making Bonnie absolutely nuts. We were getting crazy behind this. It's just nuts. I went to my sponsor. My sponsor is a guy named Milton Merle. Milton is one of the greatest guys in the world. He's just great, and he's got two grown, gorgeous daughters, so he's gone through this. And I said, I don't know what to do about Kate's room, and he said, close the door. I said, what? He said, close the door. Don't look at it. She can live any way she wants. In her room. She said, and so that's what we do. We close the door. Her room is just atrocious. And the rooms that we all live in, we keep neat. That's our responsibility to each other. Um, we have no opinions on outside issues. I mean, we have no opinions about any other family's race, uh, religion, socioeconomic status, what their beliefs are, what their ethics are. We have no opinion on that. It's none of our business. It's just none of our business. Uh, and so we don't get into those kind of fights. We don't get into those kind of discussions. And that's something you taught me about live and let live. And our public relations, our family's relations is based on attraction rather than promotion. It is not the first bit of news when you meet us that I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, that's not the first piece of information you get about us as a family. What you get to see is how we live, that we pay our bills, that we're part of the community, that we do things, that we, we participate with our kids and our lives and all that kind of stuff. And after you get to know us after a while, somebody will say, where do you go on weekends? You know? Or somebody will notice that I don't drink. And then I get to do the most effective 12-step call in the world. You know? It's happened to me a couple of times. We're the most effective when nobody has any idea that we're drunks. When a guy had a business thing sits next to me and says, God, I wish I could quit drinking. And I'd say, yeah, no, I feel, I felt like that 22 years ago. And then I get to tell him I'm an alcoholic and I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. And he goes, you? I never dream. You know, because people just know me as a guy who doesn't drink, not as a guy who can't. You know? And so eventually we get to talk about that and people find out about us. Um... Bonnie, Bonnie and I have both done public information work for Alcoholics Anonymous and for Al-Anon, and at one point when she was PI chairman in, uh, for Al-Anon, uh, she was asked to appear on the Today Show to talk about, about the disease of alcoholism. And the neat thing was she came to me and she said, would you mind if I did this? Because if anybody recognizes me, it'll break your anonymity. And I said, don't be ridiculous, of course. You know, it didn't make any difference to me, but what I loved was that she asked that question. You know? And... Uh, and anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our family's traditions, and we try to practice that. And what anonymity is, is what the big book talks about, is that it is real humility at work. That I give up the need to distinguish myself, either within Alcoholics Anonymous or out there. I don't need to call attention to myself anymore. I just need to be who I am. And we try to place the principles before personalities, and sometimes we do it really well, and sometimes we do it really bad. You know? But we try. And sometimes I'm a stunning example of sobriety. I mean, sometimes I just shimmer with sobriety. I mean, you could introduce me to your mother, you know? Mom, here's a member of AA. You 
I'm just sensationally sober, you know? <clears throat> and then there are other days when I don't drink. <laughs> then there's those days when I toy with the idea of checking in, you know? Just a rubber room and paper slippers and no doorknob on this side and a lot of Thorazine looks really attractive to me some days, you know? Just, you know, when I can't do it, when I can't do it. I am active in my group. I've always had a commitment at Alcoholics Anonymous. It's one of my sobriety traps. My, my drunks usually took about a week and a half, you know, to get really gone and really tearing and then to recover from them. It usually took about a week and a half. So I always have something that I have to do every week in Alcoholics Anonymous so I don't have time to get drunk. I have to wash cups. I have to greet at the door. I have to mop floors. I have to do all those kind of things. What I'm doing tonight is the least important 12-step work there is. The most important 12-step work is the guys who make the coffee. The guys who talk to the... The bums in, 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 in the apartments who are trying to get sober are throwing up on your shoes. That's the most important 12-step work, you know. It's really easy for me to look fabulous in Cincinnati. What is harder for me is to look fabulous in my own home. And I, I don't try to look fabulous. I try to be okay. And because of that, I've got a life that is beyond anything I believe, I believe is possible for somebody like me. I have a marriage that is just, I mean, I just, I can't believe it. I just, I, I can't believe I can't believe that I am capable of loving so much. And I can't believe that, I'm, that, I, that I, can, I can allow myself to receive it back as much, you know? Um, if any of you know Bonnie, you know what an extraordinary human being she is, you know? And, uh, you know, that blondes with me, you know? And, uh, and my Kate is just, it's incredible. She's 14 years old and she's... You know, she's not a little girl, and she's not a woman, and she's just nuts. And, uh, you know, she's having all those things, but we, we, we got this open thing. We got, we're going through the stuff. You know, some, those of us who are in the program with children, as soon as they do something, we think, oh, my God, you know, oh, my God, they're going to end up in AA. You know, and, and, you know, a lot of stuff is just experimentation, and maybe it's denial, but I, I don't know. But we're just checking out what's going on. Kate came, up, came, came to me last year and said, Dad, I smoke grass. And inside of me went, and I said, oh, really? Really? <laughs> I said, uh, you know, I'm thinking, God, give me the words. God, give me the words. Get me through this thing, God. You know, and I said, uh, so how was it? She said, well, nothing much happened. Nothing happened. And I said, oh. I said, did you get the munchies? She said, yeah. She said, I must have eaten about four chocolate bars. And I said, yeah, yeah. That's a trouble smoking grass, you know. You get fat. Sure. She's so body conscious. You know. About six months ago, she was out with some friends, and one of her friends called and said, Kate's going to stay over at my house tonight. And I said, oh, really? Put Kate on the phone. She said, well, uh, um, I said, put her on the phone. So Kate said, hello. I said, hi, Kate. I want you to be at the entrance to that apartment building in 10 minutes because I'm coming to pick you up. She said, no, you're not. I said, then I'm coming up to the apartment. She said, I'll be at the entrance. <laughs> <clears throat> so Bonnie and I drive up, and she's sitting on the curb with a friend of hers. The friend of hers kind of helps her up, and she gets up, and she does that walk. That one, You remember that walk? That... <laughs> 
know, I, she gets in the car and the car reeks of Listerine. Just and Bonnie's sitting there and I'm sitting there and and, and Bonnie's Al Anon program was barely in that car. You know, we were just it was real quiet and we didn't say anything. And uh, so we got home and she went up the stairs. Don't look to the left or the right or you'll fall down. You remember those walks? Got into bed the next day. I went to work and I got home and we had dinner. We never have guffuffles over dinner. You know, we so after, after dinner, Kate was real helpful that day. <laughs> after dinner, she's doing the dishes. I mean, I watched that for a while. That was fun to watch. She'd never done that before. So she put the final dish away, and she was folding up the dish towel. I said, well, it's time we had a little chat, Kate. And she said, about what? And I said, I said, you don't think you got away with that, do you, honey? And she said, Dad, you know I'm going to experiment. And I said, I know that. I know that, honey. I, I know you're going to try everything. I know that. But i got to tell you how I feel about that. What i got to tell you is it, it it makes me angry a little, but mostly it makes me scared. Because you're 14 years old and you just got drunk for the first time. And that's when it happened for me. And you know what happened to me. And I don't know whether this is a phase you're going through or an experiment or if you've got the gene. So we need to talk about it. We need to know what happened. And she said, I had three wine coolers, Dad. They've tasted like soda pop. And all of a sudden I was drunk. And she said, I can't remember parts of it. And I threw up a lot. And I said, oh, God, you poor darling. You know, I know what that feels like. And she said, I don't think I'm going to be doing that again. And I said, I really hope not, honey. And, uh, and the next day she went to school and everybody was talking about it. And she was just furious because some of the moms had heard about it. And they were all talking. But she was really mad. And, I, and so now we laugh. I said, you know, you got the shortest drunk along in AA, you know. <laughs> Three wine coolers blacked out, threw out, and ruined your reputation. You know, it just... <laughs> Then we were going to a Chinese restaurant. She needed a jacket, so I went to get the jacket out of her backpack, and a pack of cigarettes fell out. <laughs> so I brought the jacket back in. As we're walking back toward the car, her mother's back talking to somebody else, and I said, uh, your cigarettes are in your, uh, are in your sneaker. And she said, I don't smoke that much, Dad. I said, I hope not, honey. She said, don't tell Mom. And I said, no, you're going to. A couple of months ago, she came bounding in our bedroom, jumped up in the bed, and started talking about her friends. Her friends are 14 years old. And the 14-year-old girls these days are 14-year-old girls, and it's quite amazing what's going on. And she was talking about some of them who are sexually active, including one of her friends who's having unprotected sex with her 14-year-old boyfriend. And I said, you know, Kate, you don't have to do that. You don't have to have sex with anybody if you don't want to. But I said, if you do want to, uh, and, you, and, you, and you're moving in that direction, I, I really hope you know, you will have the good sense to use protection and you know about condoms and all that kind of stuff. She said, don't worry, Dad. No glove, no love. <laughs> and she bounded out of the room and went to her room. And I looked at Bonnie. I said, have you ever had a discussion like that with anybody? She said, are you kidding? <laughs> she said, I couldn't talk like that to you. Yeah. And the thing is, is when I talk to people about it, they say, isn't that amazing that she trusts you that much? And no, it's not amazing that she trusts me that much. That's the results of Alcoholics Anonymous in our home. The results of Alcoholics Anonymous in our home is she knows who I am. 
She knows my story, you know? She knows where I came from. She knows what I've done. She knows all the screw-ups that I've done. And she knows that, that if you make a lousy decision, you get to make another decision. Sometimes you don't have to live the rest of your life with a lousy decision. You can make another one. You can change. You can do different things. She knows all about her mother's life. We're an open book to her. There are no secrets in our house. And so she has the comfort to be able to talk to us and ask us what's going on and how she should do the things, and it's fabulous. It is absolutely remarkable. It's just incredible, but it's not unusual in Alcoholics Anonymous. When we first moved to Vancouver, the, the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the teacher, she was in grade one, she went into grade one, and the teacher came to the first parent-teacher thing and said, uh, has Kate been ha- acting out anything? at home because this is a big huge move you know into another country and all that kind of stuff and we said no why is she acting on anything here and she said no she said I've never seen a child like her she said she's she's I've never seen anybody with as much poise as she has she's she's incredibly sophisticated for for a great I said what is she doing and and she said well the first day of class she walked around to the other 30 kids and said hi my name is Kate So I'm having a good time. My life is unbelievable. My life is beyond anything it should be. I mean, I should be dead by now, but I'm not. You know, and and incredible things have happened to me, incredibly creative, exciting things. My work has been up and down. I've had a lot of problems in the work area. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 54 years old, and it's hard to get a job. So, uh, so I... Um, uh, I, I'm, I'm creating my own thing. What I do is I, I build web pages and websites for the internet. I don't even know what I'm doing. And, uh, and I also publish a newspaper, uh, which is incredible. I, uh, I write and I, I publish this newspaper and it's all over my community. And, and, uh, and that's what I do and I'm, I've been doing a part of my life that I gave up a long, long time ago has come back and I've been doing some acting stuff, which is just really funny. I mean, now that it isn't important to me, I'll probably become a star. I, uh, <laughs> yeah. Just really silly. I've, I've had some health problems. I, I'm one of those. I was one of those blonde, blue-eyed kids who got sunburned as a kid, and so I've been dealing with skin cancer for a long time. And they, I go every couple of months, and they check me out, and then take pieces of me away. And uh, uh, recently, they they removed half my nose and put it back on. That was a really fun one to watch. I was I was awake for the operation when they lifted up my nose and you know, you know, and uh, you know, every time they say skin cancer, I I, I go to you know, death and disfigurement. I mean, I go, I go straight to death. You know, and uh, you know, and I, I, I mean, I, I am, I'm, I'm still so capable of being such a horse's ass. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, well, you know, it won't be all bad. You know, they'll remove half my face, and uh, and what I'll do is I'll probably wear like a mask, like from the Phantom of the Opera. You know, when, <laughs> when I talk at AA meetings. You know, I, and people think, my God, you know, isn't he spiritual? Look at him. <laughs> I took away his face and he's still carrying the message. He slurps a bit when he talks, but God, what an example. Yeah. I'm just such a jerk, I can't believe it. Yeah. Just incredible. And, and, and I, you know, I'm a little disappointed they do such a good job with plastic surgery because nobody can see how serious it is. You know, I, I want you to know that I've been through some, some real, you know, heavy duty shit here. And everybody said, Oh, that looks good. Yeah. Um, if you're new and if you're in these rooms for the first little while, I want you to know that these people who are sharing these podiums these, on these weekends 
we're not here because we're extraordinary. We're here because we're typical. You know, these rooms all over the country are, are filled with, with crickets and Scots and Sean's and Karen's and Jack's. I mean, we're not unusual people. There's lots of our stories here. You're, the reason we identify so much with each other is because we've all been there. We all know how we feel. You guys are miracle workers because you said the thing to me that I, made, I was looking all my life. Every time I told my, 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 my problems to somebody, they consulted their books and said, this is what you should do. You know? And I came here and I said, this is what's going on with me. And you said the phrase that enabled me to hear you. You said, I know how you feel. And as soon as somebody hears that, I can be taught. And then you said, this is my experience, Tick, but you can use. And there's something extraordinary and powerful going on in these rooms. There are angels in the architecture. You know, There's hope in the chairs. There's mercy in the coffee. There's love in the hearts and there's experience in the eyes. There's healing in the hands. There's everything you ever looked for. Be very, very careful of it. Be very respectful of it. Because if you throw it away, you will become lost beyond anything you've ever been before. So stay here, because you not only need us, but we need you very much. And I want to take this time to stand before you as a group of my teachers to show you how I'm doing. Judge me kindly, I'm a work in progress. I love you very much. Keep coming back.